Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you. Our title today is Four Temptations We Must Reject in Western Christianity. Four Temptations We Must Reject in Western Christianity. And today I want to share with you, again, in a more detailed, concise form, one of the most important truths that I believe we need to absorb into our bones the expansion of Jesus' mission and church around the world, as well as for our own formation in Christ. And so I'm going to be sharing a 30-minute clip from an excerpt uh, from a chapter in the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book entitled, Follow the Crucified, Not the Americanized Jesus. And the reason being, because it's so critically important that I want to invite you to actually listen to it attentively and thoughtfully. So I'm calling this The Four Temptations, that we must reject in Western Christianity, because as you'll see, these are temptations from the evil one that come to all of us, regardless of our culture, uh, our country, the specific ministry we're engaged in, our position in that, our age, the times we live in. Uh, Now, these temptations uh, came to me slowly over time as I was studying uh, the manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, over a period of a two to three year period. And then I actually moved over to the Gospel of John, did the same thing. And really looking carefully at how Jesus was discipling and forming the 12. Uh, And actually, I continue this process today. I've been the last couple of years in the Gospel of Mark. And and again, what I'll do is I'll I'll read and mark up texts uh, and chapters over and over and over again, studying them, then doing Lectio and meditating, and most importantly, praying them and, and so as I began to, to study these texts in this kind of detail over such a long period of time, uh, it just emerged these, these uh, this contrast of uh, the evil one's temptations uh, to what Jesus was trying to form in the 12. And we see him trying to, Jesus driving out of their bones a way of thinking and living and imagining what it means to follow God and their view of the world. Over and over again, he's hitting the same themes. And he wants them to understand that these are demonic temptations, they're worldly temptations. And as they step into leadership on his behalf, they're going to become increasingly critical to be clear about in their own heads. And so you've heard perhaps the expression from me in previous podcasts, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Uh, And that comes out of an expression we often use in English, we know something in our bones. It means it's so deep in us. So we have a way of living and thinking about God and life that's so deep in us, it's in our bones. Uh, And not just from our family of origin, but also from our culture, the Western world. And actually, if you look in scripture, uh, Babylon represents worldliness. And we see this all through from scripture from Genesis 11 all the way through the book of Revelation. So it's really not a Western Christianity. I think it's actually just a a worldly uh, way of viewing God and life. It's universal. And in some ways, they are the temptations of the evil one that come to all of us. And so Jesus knew this needed to be driven out of their bones and that Jesus needed to be in their bones, so deeply in them. And so these truths, I pray, will get deeply into your bones and then from you out to others. And so I'll draw from a number of texts. One is from Matthew 16, when Jesus begins to tell the 12 disciples about he's going to be crucified, uh, and then Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. And Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the concerns, of not the concerns of God, but the concerns of human beings. And, And so he's into Jesus, the apostle Peter, but he's not into the crucified Jesus. And so 
we're gonna, you're going to see here, you're gonna, as you listen to this audio, that uh, the Jesus call to reject popularity as the world understands it. Uh, in other words, we don't live it for what people will see, but the invitation to be popular with him, Jesus, alone. Then we see Jesus calling the disciples to reject the world's definition of greatness and, and the evil one's temptation to pull us into that. And Jesus utterly rejected the world's definition of greatness, but we want to be great with him. Uh, and then we see Jesus calling disciples to reject the whole world's understanding of success, uh, bigger, better, up and to the right, uh, but Jesus redefining it as doing God's will and offering our gift to the world. And we want to be a success with him and hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Then the final temptation is, which is to to uh, avoid suffering and failure uh, versus Jesus' invitation for us to embrace suffering and failure, that we want to follow Jesus on the cross, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Christ. So just as vectors in mathematics, if you know mathematics, they're line segments that have a direction to them, uh, and actually a magnitude as well. But if there's a slight uh, space between those vectors of just even one or two degrees, that space between those two lines only grows larger and larger with time. And so it's not about just even getting close to understanding this. Uh, you want to get it in your bones because the implications are so far-reaching for your life and all those you lead. Uh, we want this message, and I, I plead that this message of Jesus gets into your bones. And just as Jesus drove out of the 12 and their Greco-Roman Jewish religious first century bones, it needs to be driven out of us. And that way we can give it away to others. And so uh, let me invite you, you know, if you listen to this, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. Uh, that's emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. And I would look at the free discussion guide around the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book. You can watch some video clips that I do as introduce each chapters. Uh, I think you'll find it very much a great supplement to what you're doing. So let me invite you to listen attentively, thoughtfully to the Holy Spirit in you, speaking to you, and blessings to you as you listen. Worldly Discipleship versus Jesus Discipleship. The question then becomes, what does it mean for us to be cross-centered, to follow the crucified Jesus in our context and moment in history? The best way to get at an answer to this is to better understand the contrast between what Jesus taught and modeled about discipleship and what the religious leaders of his day taught and modeled. In other words, to make a distinction between the world's discipleship and Jesus' discipleship. It comes down to four key differences. The world's discipleship says, be popular. Jesus' discipleship says, reject popularity, be popular with me. The world's discipleship says, be great. Jesus' discipleship says, reject greatnessism, be great with me. The world's discipleship says, be successful. Jesus' discipleship says, reject successism, be a success with me. The world's discipleship says, avoid suffering and failure. Jesus' discipleship says, Embrace suffering and failure. Be faithful to me. As we shall see, these four sets of characteristics overlap and interpret one another, yet they also merit separate treatment. In fact, each of these four descriptions of the world's discipleship are powerfully and deeply ingrained in the church. Just as Jesus taught the Twelve, we too must reject them categorically, not only because they are illusory and temporary, but because they damage us and the people we lead.
Let's begin with the first great challenge of popularity, which is a preoccupation with what others think. First, be popular versus reject popularity. I vividly remember a conversation I had with a pastor of a large, prominent church when I was still in the early years of my ministry. I had just finished telling him about our commitment to racial reconciliation and to working among the poor. With a big grin on his face, he encouraged me to shift my focus to building a big church just as he had. Pete, you don't get it, he said matter-of-factly. When I walk into a room with a group of pastors, it's like the Red Sea parts. Why? Because of the size of our church. If you want people to listen to what you have to say, you'll need numbers behind you. I thought, this pastor is a godly fellow. Many people have come to Christ in his church. I've learned a lot from him. But I left feeling confused. A few years later, I had coffee with another well-known pastor of an even larger church who encouraged me to open up an office in Manhattan near the corridors of political and financial power. Pete, you can't make an impact in Queens, he said. The only way people in this city will know who you are is if you become a player on the large political platforms. Again, I left feeling confused. I left both conversations confused because both of these men were making a significant impact on our city and were trying to help me. Yet I knew something about their counsel wasn't quite right at least for me. A common definition of popular is to be liked, enjoyed, or admired by many people. Who doesn't want to be popular? The problem is that it leads us to do and say things to impress other people and to make decisions that we might not otherwise make. It has taken me decades to grasp the enormous power of the temptation to be popular. In fact, it was one of the three temptations the devil used in an attempt to drive a wedge between Jesus and the Father. Satan, quoting scripture, invited Jesus to throw himself down from the highest spot of the temple so people might believe in him. At this point, Jesus was not popular. He was, in effect, invisible to them, just another face in the crowd. But Jesus refused to perform for recognition and left the pinnacle of the temple alone and unrecognized. When the religious authorities, who were unimpressed with Jesus, asked for a sign, Jesus refused to do a miracle on demand. In fact, Jesus always seemed to do his miracles as inconspicuously as possible. The loaves and fishes, for example, were not multiplied through an explosive thunderclap, but almost invisibly through the hands of the twelve until more than 5,000 were fed. Jesus refused to act in ways to be admired or liked. The desire to be popular was so deeply ingrained in the secular and religious cultures of the first century that Jesus publicly called out the Pharisees and teachers of the law, saying, Everything they do is done for people to see, Matthew 23, 5. Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, were to utterly reject a showy spirituality to impress other people, whether it be in the way they gave, prayed, fasted, or offered any other service to God. Let me say this as clearly as possible. Jesus denounced any activity that had traces of seeking the approval or admiration of others. We are to give up all acting and every quest to be noticed by someone else, whether it be by building a larger or more unique ministry, 
accumulating more money or possessions, or advancing up a career ladder. Jesus knew the weaknesses of the human heart. He knew that the desire to impress others would be a constant temptation. He said to the religious leaders, How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He knew the desire for popularity had poisoned their faith and their leadership. He also knew it had the potential to poison the discipleship of his followers as well. We would like to think that we're advanced beyond the popularity concerns held by the religious leaders in Jesus' day. But most of us place a higher premium on what other people think than we realize. If you doubt that, consider if you've ever had any thoughts such as these. How am I coming off as I preach this message and use this illustration? If I talk with that person about how they hurt me, will they see me differently? If I share my hopes and dreams, will they think I'm selfish? Will my supervisor treat me differently if I share my struggles? How many likes or followers might I pick up if I post this on social media? Often our longing to be noticed and esteemed by others is so deep and unconscious that it can be difficult to recognize it for what it is. And yet it surfaces in subtle but recognizable ways. For example, saying yes when we would rather say no, refusing to speak up because we don't want to rock the boat, or remaining silent about our preferences and desires out of fear of what others might think. In my early ministry years, my desire to impress others led me to make decisions far outside of God's plan and timetable for our church. When other ministries seemed to grow quickly, I didn't want to be perceived as a failure, so I started ministries and even churches before we were ready. And because those new initiatives needed leaders, I released people into significant ministry roles prematurely. I trust you can imagine what happened as a result. When God was seeking to mature me and our church through tests and trials, I was more concerned about how other pastors or leaders might view the slow, messy path we were on. Sadly, I allowed that self-imposed pressure to rob me, our family, and our church leadership of the many joys God had in store for us. Another consequence of my need to impress others was that I inadvertently lied a lot. Like most people, I lied before I committed my life to Christ at age 19. What is more alarming, however, is how much lying I continued to do. I lied first and foremost to myself, then to others, and even to God in order to be a good witness as a young leader. I pretended things were okay when they were not. In order to keep the peace, even if it was a false peace, I was dishonest in difficult conversations. When we did our annual review of key volunteer and paid positions in the church, I withheld honest feedback when there were improvements to be made. Why, I couldn't bear people not being okay with me. And if someone needed to be let go from a position, I was overly concerned about how that might reflect poorly on me. As a result, I often said nothing about legitimate concerns, finding it easier to spin a few facts rather than risk losing relationships. The problem was that I wasn't truly free. Freedom comes when we no longer need to be somebody special in other people's eyes. We are to be content to be popular with him alone. It is important to note that Jesus doesn't criticize the fundamental human desire to be popular but he does redirect it. He wants us to shift our desire from focusing on people 
to focusing on the Father. At the end of our earthly journey, he wants to be able to say to each of us, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the only affirmation that will ever truly satisfy our desire for recognition. The longing to be popular, to be loved, enjoyed, and accepted is God-given, but it is also unquenchable this side of heaven. Jesus wants us to know that God alone is the only deeply satisfying source of recognition. He knows that if the praise and notice of the whole world were given to us, we would still say, it is too little. Thus, rejecting earthly popularity is essential for following the crucified Jesus and engaging in deeply transformative discipleship with him. But we also need to do the same thing with the world's idea of greatness. So if number one in the world's discipleship versus Jesus' discipleship is be popular versus reject popularity, number two is be great versus reject greatnessism. Every culture and field of human endeavor has its way of honoring those who attain greatness. We award the Nobel Prize to recognize academic, cultural, or scientific achievements. There are Oscars and Tonys for outstanding performance in film and on stage. We award medals to Olympic athletes and trophies to World Cup and Super Bowl champions. We erect monuments, create days of remembrance, and even canonize those who do great things for humanity. We also create definitions of greatness out of our unique cultures and families of origin. For example, since both my mother's and father's parents immigrated to the United States from Italy, they grew up with a drive to succeed that so often characterizes immigrant families. They then passed that drive on to my three siblings and me. Their greatness goals for each of us included graduating college, making a lot of money, and moving up the social class ladder. My mom, on hearing that I was going to be a pastor, mumbled, well, don't be a loser, at least be like Billy Graham. Greatness in any family or culture might include earning straight A's in school, graduating from a prestigious university, becoming a lawyer or medical doctor, getting married and having children, becoming a pastor or vocational Christian worker. The list goes on. That same dynamic plays out often unconsciously in ministry. Our desires for greatness might sound like this. I want to build a great church with one, two, or even 500 people attending our services. I want to build a great ministry that effectively reaches young people. I want to lead a great small group that grows quickly. I want to be a great board member who offers wisdom and direction to the ministry. I want to be a great prayer team member who helps release God's power in people. I want to be a great teacher of God's word. I want to be a great financial giver to ministries. As a visionary who routinely eats three new ideas for breakfast, I love dreaming about great things our ministry could do for God. The danger is, again, the audience. For whom am I seeking to be great? What is the deeper, often unconscious motive behind my visions and dreams? Jesus does call us to greatness, but it is utterly different from the world's definition of greatness, which he condemns. The culturalized view of greatness most of us experience is what might be called greatnessism. As theologian Frederick Dale Bruner describes it, greatnessism is a major social spiritual disease and a principal cause of false faith. 
Greatnessism is what led the Pharisees and teachers of the law to view themselves as a cut above everyone else. Their knowledge of scripture and their legalistic zeal earned them perks, such as the first or best seats in the synagogue, honorary titles, and distinctive clothing that set them apart from others. Their greatnessism, however, contrasted with the life and ministry of Jesus that was anything but great by the religious and cultural standards of that day. Jesus' beginnings were not great. He was born in a manger in a small village to a poor family. He had to flee as a fugitive and refugee to Egypt. He grew up in a small town called Nazareth that was considered Nowheresville. Unlike other prominent rabbis of the day, he did not study at any of the established rabbinical schools in Jerusalem. Jesus' disciples were not great. His chosen staff and leadership team were Galileans and mostly blue-collar, uneducated fishermen. They were not impressive people of great influence or intellect, and they surely weren't setting the world on fire during their three years with Jesus. Jesus' ministry was not great. Jesus seemed to run more of an ambulance ministry, driving around and picking up the crushed victims of oppression rather than working to overthrow the evil political, military, and economic structures of his day. Jesus' miracles happened mostly in the backwoods of Galilee, not in strategic places such as Jerusalem or Rome. The Pharisees and Sadducees, along with Herod and the Roman Empire, all remained in power. Jesus' command to his followers to love their enemies in the context of the cruel oppression of the Romans seemed a weak and ineffective strategy for social change. And Jesus' impact was not great. The small towns in which Jesus concentrated his ministry and miracles, such as Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and even his hometown of Nazareth, rejected him. He didn't even seem to have the ability to convince Judas, his treasurer and one of the twelve, to stick with him when things grew difficult. Even John the Baptist doubted him as he sat in prison. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Matthew 11.3 Jesus knew that, just as he had renounced greatnessism when tempted by Satan, we too must make the same decision to categorically reject greatnessism for the deadly threat it is. In fact, Jesus calls us to give up the whole idea of greatness and status completely, even in spiritual matters. So in the same way we are to be popular with God, we are to be great with him as well, looking for his affirmation alone. Well done, good and faithful servant. The pathway Jesus calls us to walk is an intentional move away from greatnessism to being little or lowly. Jesus said, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Such lowliness is not abasement or self-deprecation or a martyr complex. Instead, it is a humility that expresses itself in a willingness to be curious, open, flexible, and teachable, regardless of the title or position we hold. In other words, we do not always need to be in charge. In conversations, we don't engage in impression management to cover our weaknesses in the hope that people will think we are somebody. Nor do we limit the kinds of people from whom we can learn or by whom we can be led. We choose to practice humility and servanthood 
by actually being with those who tend to be marginalized by the wider culture. The unattractive, the socially non-strategic, the elderly, the mentally or physically handicapped, the prisoner, the battered, the poor. We join Jesus in being impressed by and in awe of people the world considers unimpressive. Like the Apostle Paul, we are to internalize how the cross of Christ has put to death the old world of distinctions, divisions, and hierarchies. As a result, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16. In following the crucified Jesus, we shift our focus from our great plans for God to the largely hidden work of doing small deeds of service for others. Towards this end, I regularly ask myself two questions. When are my plans and ambitions legitimately for the glory of God, and when do they cross the line into my own desire for greatness? What opportunities has God placed before me to be lowly with the lowly, to be little with the little? The first question slows me down to ensure I am not making plans without God or rebelling against His limits. The second reminds me that it is crucial I be with the lowly, the poor, and those whom the world ignores, because it is through them that I meet Jesus. This redefinition of greatness by Jesus leads us to the third core aspect of His reframing of reality for us as disciples, the rejection of worldly success. So in the world's discipleship versus Jesus' discipleship, first, it's be popular versus reject popularity. The second is be great versus reject greatnessism. But the third is now be successful versus reject successism. Who doesn't want to be a success? We look up to and admire successful people. We pay extra attention to them. Being a success may truly be the world's most universal religion, one called successism. For this reason, we need to see successism for what it is, a counterfeit faith that has the power to separate us from Jesus. Remember, we live in a larger culture that believes bigger is always better. Bigger profits, bigger influence, bigger impact. And the church more or less believes the same thing. We measure success by the numbers, and bigger is always the goal. If our numbers are increasing, we feel great and consider our efforts a success. If they are not, we feel despondent and consider our efforts a failure, which is why it is essential that we define success rightly. According to Jesus, success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in His way and according to His timetable. This is so important that I ask that you listen one more time to that definition. Slowly. Success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in His way and according to His timetable. The Apostle Peter went down swinging as Jesus led him step by step into a rejection of worldly success. Peter, like most leaders, wanted to change the world through Jesus. But the culture of successism was so deeply embedded in him that he resisted Jesus on this at every turn. 
Peter simply could not reconcile his understanding of success with the crucifixion, with failures, rejections, and defeats, with mustard seeds and a few loaves and fishes. Despite three years of being with Jesus, he remained so infected with successism that at Jesus' arrest, he could justify resorting to violence to protect it. With success as a supreme value, he didn't think twice about drawing a sword and cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. We are not unlike the Apostle Peter. Our successism drives us to make misguided decisions and to treat people in ways antithetical to the heart of Jesus. At least 90% of pastors and leaders I speak with, young and old alike, experience an ironic consequence of successism. They feel like failures, underperformers, subpar representatives of Jesus. It's never enough an associate pastor named Fran lamented to me. I'm working six days a week and I still can't keep up. My husband complains that my two middle school boys know I'm constantly distracted when I'm home. But what can I do? There just isn't enough time. I know this ever-gnawing ache of the soul only too well, along with its crushing weight. In my early years of pastoring, it wasn't until I began the journey of emotionally healthy discipleship that the ache dissipated and the heavy weight began to lift. What makes this so challenging when we begin serving and leading is that our relationship with God gets so wed to our work for God that the two become almost indistinguishable. When who we are, our identity as a loved daughter or son of God, becomes inseparable from our leadership role, we are especially vulnerable to one of the most subtle and treacherous temptations from the evil one, to equate our worth with our success in ministry and leadership. Few of us appreciate that the final temptation Satan posed to Jesus in the desert revolved around success. Satan offers him immediate success in saving the world. Every person in the world would bow to him as Savior. And this could be accomplished without the agony of the crucifixion. Jesus could eliminate everything he knows is coming, a downward journey into failure and defeat. All he has to do is violate the Father's gift of limits. Had Jesus succumbed to the temptation, he might have succeeded in getting the ministry work done, but he would have utterly failed by God's definition of success. He would not have done God's work in God's way according to God's timetable. Theologian Frederick Dale Bruner aptly summarizes the real threat behind the successism temptation. We will sometimes do absolutely anything to keep our work from failing. But the moment we do absolutely anything to keep our work for God from failing, we have made our work God, and perhaps without realizing it, we have worshipped Satan. For this reason, we must expose and reject the successism that so permeates our churches today and lead so often to a compromise in our integrity. Remember, not every opportunity to expand the work of God is actually an invitation from God. This unhealthy striving for worldly success also leads us to be even more resistant to another essential component of Jesus' discipleship, the unique way we are to approach suffering and failure. 
So in the world's discipleship versus Jesus' discipleship, we've looked at one, be popular versus reject popularity. Two, be great versus reject greatnessism. Three, be successful versus reject successism. And now fourthly, avoid suffering and failure versus embrace suffering and failure. Contemporary churches immersed in Western culture have much in common with the Corinthian church of the first century. Being the wealthiest city in Greece and one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire, Corinth was the New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. People from around the world came to Corinth to make it there. The church was zealous, brilliant, and gifted, but also beset with a wide assortment of problems. Divisions, arrogance, poor treatment of weaker members, dangerous accommodations to culture, and a confused sexuality for singles and marrieds. As Paul begins to address their questions and problems, he reminds them, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. This is the lens through which Paul views leadership, relationships, discernment, and the church. For example, he refused to boast in his visions and revelations from God as a source of his authority. He pointed those questioning his leadership to his weaknesses. As he wrote to another church, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Corinthians forgot, much as we do today, that they were called to a way of life that reveals the glory of Christ in weakness and suffering, not in the escape or denial of the painful realities around them. The cross was a scandal for them, and it remains a scandal for us today. In contemporary religious life, our stock in trade is positive thinking with its partner, avoidance, blocking out difficult and painful issues. This is the very opposite of a way of life where God's power is revealed in weakness. What does it look like for us to embrace God's way of weakness? It means, for example, that I am willing to look foolish even when I'm failing and can wait on God rather than manipulate people and plans for numerical growth in my ministry. I'm willing to be a true peacemaker, as Jesus modeled, and deal with conflicts rather than sweep them under the rug, even though the ministry may look worse, at least in the short run. I am willing to limit my plans and activities so as not to skimp on self-care or my relationships with those closest to me. I refuse to fake it till I make it. I'm willing to take time to grieve the losses around me and trust God to reveal the treasures he has for me in them and to take the necessary time to be present to people as Jesus was, even if it makes me look weak to those around me. I'm willing to be honest about what is happening in the ministry and not exaggerate, even though it may hinder people's excitement to give financially. Is it any wonder Jesus did not stop reminding the twelve again and again that God's way of salvation is slow and small, a mustard seed, to demonstrate the power is always God's and not ours? Imagine if Peter had not been broken by his humiliating failures, but was leading the church after Pentecost from a place of smugness and unteachability. Imagine if Paul, with all his gifting, drive, and intellect, had not had a thorn in the flesh that he could not remove or pray away. 
Imagine if Moses had not spent 40 years in exile in Midian after murdering an Egyptian or had not experienced the humiliations of unjust accusations and rebellions against his leadership during his 40 years in the desert. Suffering and failure have always been God's means to transform us from willful to willing, from swimming upstream against the current of God's love to floating downstream, trusting in Him to take care of us. It is also the primary way He teaches us to be patient. Jesus' greatest miracle was the resurrection, but His second greatest miracle was something He did not do. Jesus models patience for us when He refuses to use His power to come down from the cross. The temptation came and hurled insults from those who passed by. Save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Yet what looked like a colossal failure turned out to be a great victory. The worst moment in history became the world's greatest moment. And so it is with us, if we are patient. Jesus had a choice to leave the cross or to stay on it. We face the same choice whenever we're in situations where everything in us wants to save ourselves instead. What does it look like to save ourselves, to come down from a cross? In my own life, I come down from the cross when I don't want to look like a failure. I launch initiatives out of impatience, make hasty decisions without taking the time to seek wise counsel, and frantically overwork out of fear the ministry might decline or stagnate. Ask yourself, in what ways do I try to avoid the suffering and failure Jesus might be setting before me? Before whom do I most dread looking foolish? Name them. And rest assured, God wants to show you that your worst moments of failures and defeats may actually be your greatest moments of success in terms of God doing a transformative work in and through you. In asking you to make the necessary changes to follow the crucified not the Americanized Jesus, I am not asking you to add one more item to your already overloaded schedule. I am asking you to make a U-turn and rearrange your life around an entirely new way of serving and leading for Jesus. This is nothing short of a groundbreaking and culture-defying act of rebellion against much of Western Christianity. <laughs>